Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. All right, this guy is a giant. If you're meditating today, odds are it is indirectly or directly because of John Kabat-Zinn. He is a, um, an MIT-trained scientist who uh, many decades ago had the, a brilliant idea, which was uh, he took Buddhist meditation and he stripped all the metaphysical claims and the religious jargon out of it, and he started teaching it in a fully secular way uh, through something called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR. And this was a massively consequential move because teaching it in this kind of eight-week the standardized protocol without any religious overtones allowed uh, for what happened next, which was uh, scores of scientists to swoop in and to measure what kind of psychological and physiological changes happen for people when they meditated. Uh, and that is why I believe we now have uh, millions of people who are meditating and are happier and healthier as a result. So I think John Kabat-Zinn is, uh, as I said before, a giant and possibly even uh, a historical figure. He's also a, an awesome dude, so uh, it was it was a pleasure to sit down and, and talk to him, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Just let me say from the outset that if you're interested in learning more about him, he's got a bunch of great books, including uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is a classic in the meditation uh, world. Here you are, John Kabat-Zinn. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. How did you start meditating? Ever since I was a kid, growing up in New York City, I've been interested in science and I've been interested in art. For a very simple reason, my father was like a super scientist uh, at Columbia Medical School, and my mother was a, an amazingly prolific painter and completely unknown. So my father was like really well-known, my mother was completely unknown. But I grew up in that world where they saw the world differently, and I could see as a young boy them seeing the world differently, and I was seeing the world through both of their eyes. And my mother kind of like was seeing the world through like, I don't want to exaggerate it, but something like Monet's eyes, you know. She didn't see shadow and color and reflection in glass and water and ripples. And, and somehow that transferred to me. So while I was a relatively young boy, I kept wondering how it, you'd reconcile the scientific lens on reality and the artistic lens on reality and how it's shaped by imagination, creativity which is also true in science. And then when I was at MIT as a graduate student in molecular biology, you know, I saw a sign on the wall saying the three pillars of Zen talk by Philip Kaplow at the invitation of Houston Smith. So the three pillars of Zen was a very popular yeah, book. Yeah, but that time, was yeah. in 1965. I was 21 years old. And I didn't know who uh, Houston Smith was. I didn't know who Philip Kaplow was. And I had no idea what Zen was, but I went to that talk. And uh, three other people in all of MIT went to that talk, <laughs> That's aside it? from Philip Kaplow, and yeah, three, maybe four. <laughs> and Kaplow, I mean, the talk, it was before the book came out, actually, that took the top of my head. And it, it was like a realization, this is what I've been looking for my whole 21 years of my whole life. What did he say? Well, it's not so much what he said, but it was like the focus on wakefulness, the focus on awareness, the focus on uh, the present moment, and that the the knowing is is really far more than a conceptual knowing. And so when you understand that awareness is a form of intelligence that is different from and bigger than but not exclusive of thought and cognition and so forth, then 
it unifies what Wordsworth called in the preludes discordant elements and makes them move in, as he put it, in one society. So I, it was like a, a realization for me at 21, I'm looking for this. And I started meditating that day, and I've never stopped. Well, just just clarify, dig down a little bit on that, what it was... You talk about awareness. That can be that. That's a, I think for a lot of people, a bit of a nebulous yeah, term. Yeah, right. It's so, like awareness. Like I'm aware it's snowing out. You know. Okay, big deal. So, what do you mean by it? And what did he say about awareness that got you so fired? Well, up? Well, one of the things that he said was that you know he was uh, at the Columbia University School of Journalism, and then he went and covered the Nuremberg War Trials. And, of course, there you're hearing the most horrific things that human beings have ever done to uh, each other. And uh, he took it all in. And then he had all these sort of psychosomatic symptoms that were really problematic for him as a fairly young man, like including ulcers and headaches and everything. So some, for some reason or other, it was like a crisis in his life. And he moved to Japan and actually sat in a Zen monastery in Hokkaido, which is like the northernmost island in Japan, in a freezing cold monastery, not heated in the wintertime. And in six months of sitting, you know, a very rigorous meditative schedule, uh, all his symptoms cleared up. And as a 21-year-old, I'm going... My eyes are just going, wow. And it's like I was really impressed. And it stuck with me, not so much like he, his symptoms cleared up, but just this is really powerful stuff. And it looks a lot like absolutely nothing. <laughs> so it turns out that what looks a lot like absolutely nothing when we're talking about wakefulness or awareness or this form of human capacity or intelligence, that um, it, it turns out it may look like much ado about nothing, but it turns about out to be more like much ado about what looks like almost nothing and turns out to be just about everything. So that grew in me for a long time while I was doing molecular biology at MIT in the lab of a Nobel laureate and, you know, functioning on that kind of a level. But there was this other stream that was energizing me through my sitting meditation practice and so forth. And then when I was also in those years during the Vietnam War and so forth, I wandered over to Boston and wound up in the Matson Karate Studio, Okinawan Karate, and these were all young Vietnam vets who were coming back and teaching karate. And, and in the warm-ups of the karate, they were doing this weird stuff that I just absolutely loved more than the karate and turned out to be hatha yoga. So within a year or two of like, that, both meditation and, and Buddhist meditation practice and hatha yoga, and together they were like, you know, it's completely transformed my life. And so I, I thought, well, all my friends are doing molecular biology. I'd like to do the biology of mindfulness and yoga and see what is going on because I can feel it in my own body. I can feel it in my own mind and heart. Who's looking at that and what the potential social benefits from that are, not just merely meditate and you know, reduce your own stress, but what would that mean if you really organized your life around what's deepest and best and most beautiful in yourself as opposed to just being lost in your head all the time and stressed out a good deal at a time, running through your moments rather than inhabiting them? It took you a while, though, to figure out how to marry these things. Yeah, oh, yeah, so. yeah. And, and I got a lot, believe me, I got a lot of, I can't say it on the radio, but uh, a lot of stuff from uh, my Nobel laureate thesis advisor, like I was wasting my life because I wasn't going to, you know, sort of do the usual route to, you know, Nobel Prize winning success in science. Uh, but I knew by that time that 
this was my work. And the way I framed it in you know, my second book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, I was like asking myself for a period of 10 years after I got my PhD, what is my job on the planet with a capital J? Meaning, in other words, what would I love so much I'd pay to do it? Redefine work that way. And I spent 10 years getting all this crap from people, my father, you know, my everybody. What are you doing with your life? You know, you, here you are, like, you know, you're not doing what you're trained to do. What, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then after about 10 years, I had a, 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 an insight on a mindfulness retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in uh, Barry, Mass., which I know you know well, mm-hmm. uh, sitting on a, you know, 10-day, two-week retreat. And on the 10th day, it stall. all those 15 years of practice at that point just came together in that question of what is my job on the planet. And what came was a kind of instantaneous recognition of the possibility of taking this into hospitals where people are suffering, like hospitals function as kind of dukkha magnets in this society. Dukkha, didn't we just translate dukkha, that quickly? Is dukkha is the, the Buddhist, Buddhist term, for, term suffering. for suffering, yeah. anguish, the human condition. Yeah. And what better place, so to speak, to train medical patients not getting full satisfaction from the healthcare system the way it was then in 1979 uh, to challenge them to learn to do something for themselves that no one on the planet could do based on these, you know, deep meditative practices uh, and see what would happen. And so that's how mindfulness-based stress reduction came about. So I would argue, and 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 um, I don't, this may make you a little uncomfortable, but I would argue that moment of insight you had on, I believe, the second floor of one of the buildings at Insight Meditation Society. You probably know the room. I I probably (laughs) do know the room in the Catskills, which is one of the buildings there. Um, It changed history. It was a historic moment, that moment, uh, on many levels. I mean, look, on a super selfish level, that moment changed my life because I would never have started meditating had you not had this idea to marry oh, science wow. and and meditation because you then made what 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 happened after that after that awakening or after that insight moment was you then created mindfulness based stress reduction yeah. which was an 8 week protocol to teach meditation without the buddhist lingo and metaphysics mm-hmm. it then became studied it, that protocol allowed it to be studied in labs all over right. the world which allowed me as a skeptical ornery uh, neurotic news reporter in the late uh, 2000s to um, say, oh, maybe I would do this, this thing that I always thought was weird. So it's historic on a very super, on a narrow, uh, selfish level, but it has opened up meditation as a practice yeah. to so many more people, millions of people who yeah. would otherwise have rejected it. And I know, uh, I, I, I know this makes you slightly uncomfortable because I'm kind of, you talking about yourself is not your favorite subject, but I honestly do think it was an enormously consequential well, moment. Well, I certainly uh, honor that and appreciate your saying it. And, and I actually didn't know that you, um, in your mind, you have that, that kind of association. Oh, you so are the sine qua non of my meditation practice. Well, I, am, I can't tell you what that means to me because the whole point of doing this was really to touch people in such a way as that that it would, it's not that they would be interested in me as the sort of progenitor of anything, but they would be interested in them in a way that's novel, not narcissistic, not self-promotional, but uh, in a way that 
as many of our medical patients say after eight weeks of training in this, where none of them come to the hospital to learn how to meditate. They are coming to the hospital because they are suffering, and the medicine is not doing it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people falling through the cracks of the healthcare system. And that was in 1979. Now, 38 years into it, uh, medicine has evolved to the point where what w- used to be cracks are now like chasms, the Mm. Grand Canyon. I mean, there are lots of people who are not getting satisfaction. And this has redefined an element of medicine to become more participatory, that we have to engage as a participant in our own trajectory towards greater health and well-being, whether we're one day away from being dead, but still breathing and still alive, or whether we have our whole life in front of us, but we're saddled with this kind of diagnosis or that kind of condition or that kind of suffering. And it comes in, as you know, in innumerable different forms. No one asks for it, but what do you do when you can't just magically take a pill and have it go away or cut it out through some kind of surgical procedure? So I honor that, and I think basically the I think the most important point for your listeners is one – that the change that you experienced that you're attributing to like you know that cons- that sequence of events it's still it's yours it's your you took responsibility for something and it something resonated with you and it transformed your life and this we see this happening for thousands and tens of thousands of people and each one is nobody's imitating me or some guru or hero of the moment everybody's through the way we train people in mindfulness, they're understanding that there's no one right way to do this. And there's no special state. Mindfulness, and this ought to be really helpful to your listeners, meditation is not about achieving some one special state where everything falls together or falls away and you just have like a permanent quote-unquote enlightenment experience and all problems fall away and you don't care anymore or you're infinitely compassionate and turn out to be, you know, pal of the Dalai Lama. That's all like a fantasy. Uh, The beauty of it is that uh, rather than looking for some special experience, it's the flipping of that and recognizing that everything you're experiencing is unbelievably special. And yet, as long as you only are seeing it through the lens of what you want, what you don't want, what you're afraid of, and what you, you know, so forth, that you're actually not experiencing your life. You're experiencing a narrative filtering of your life that always reduces its dimensionality. So therefore, in terms of transformation or healing, what you're reporting in terms of your experience, that's generalizable. And through the practice of the cultivation of mindfulness, and we should probably say what it is or what we yeah, go know, for think it. of it. But um, that through the, the actual practice, the cultivation of mindfulness is not a, a good idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a catechism. It's not a religion. It's a way of being in relationship with experience. Uh, through that, what you engage in is a kind of ongoing experience of uh, learning, inwardly and outwardly, because you're paying attention. Through the learning... You're, you can't help but grow because that's what human beings do. That's what life is about is growing. Uh, and then through the growing, you can't help but have a different relationship with the unwanted, 
with what's most stressful and what's most painful, whether it's physical or emotional. And that's my working definition of healing, that healing is coming to terms with things as they are. It's very different from fixing in the medical model of, well, we'll just cut it out or we'll fix it or put it in or remount the carburetor or whatever it is. No, it's like that we are a self-healing organism. So healing is coming to terms with the actuality of things, which is very far from passive resignation or just surrender or giving up and going hopeless. And then out of that healing comes a profound transformation that is not like something that you have to go to the mountaintop and wait for 20 years and follow your breath, that it's here in every moment the, the potential to actually recognize that your awareness is bigger than your story about how bad things are or how good things are. And therefore, it gives you a new degree of freedom or many new degrees of freedom to deal with your reactive emotions, to deal with your self-centeredness, to deal with uh, anger, frustration, depression, uh, orneriness, whatever it is, in a way where, like, you're already at home, only why did it take 30 or 40 or 50 years to discover that, like, it doesn't get any better than this. It, you just get older. Mm. But what about if we really learn to inhabit the present moment, then there's a certain way in which you're already home. And the, the Zen people or the Buddhists might refer to this as, like, you're actually in touch with your true nature or who you actually are as opposed to who you think you are, want to be, don't want to be, the story of how inadequate or, you know, sort of uh, traumatized or whatever. Not that the stories aren't true, and a lot of us are seriously traumatized, but that when you befriend even that, you turn towards what you most don't want to have and you want to cut out or run away from it, it turns out there's a certain kind of transformative and healing potential in that. And since there really is no other sensible thing to do uh, because we have to learn how to recognize and accept the actuality of things even if like we don't like it. That allows for a kind of healing and recognition that whoever you are, and this is where the personal pronouns come in, you is a personal pronoun, whoever, me, whoever I am, it is much, much bigger than who I think I am. And it's trustworthy. And it's healing. And the body now through the science, to loop back to the science, it turns out that through all these meditative studies and neuroscience and, uh, you know, epigenetics and so forth, it turns out that uh, we're learning that the body and the brain and the whole organism is unbelievably plastic. It's continually regulating and changing itself, including the brain wiring and structure on the basis of how we actually live our lives from moment to moment and how we conduct ourselves and how much we repeat the same old you know, things that get us into trouble versus more virtuous activities that actually, uh, it turns out, can transform virtually every aspect of our physiology and our genetics. So it, it, it turns out that telomeres, for instance, the, the, the repeat DNA subunits at the ends of all of our chromosomes, they are 
rapidly degraded under stress. And when you practice mindfulness, they are much, much less rapidly degraded or they actually get longer, which means that – and that's the biological mechanism of uh, stress uh, reducing longevity, shortening our lifespan. And we often say, you know, wow, that experience took years off my life. You know, so <laughs> people say that. Yeah, it yeah. turns out it's absolutely yeah, true. Yeah, yes. And Elizabeth Blackburn won the, at UCSF won the Nobel Prize for that in 2009. And her colleague, Alyssa Apple and she just wrote a book called The Telomere Effect. It hasn't come out yet. But it like documents how we have actual control over the rate at which we are going, you know, our cells are biologically are dying. Uh, and also in terms of what's called functional can- connectivity in the brain, all sorts of studies now showing that mindfulness can actually enhance connectivity in the brain between, say, emotional, you know, sort of the hippocampus and center for learning and and uh, uh, memory and emotion regulation and executive functioning in different areas of the brain. It's like the brain is like an orchestra, and when it's in tune with it, itself, it's like all the different instruments are talking with each other, but the conversation is larger than the individual notes and the individual pieces. Well, you know, if we're walking around, each one of us, with that inside the cranium, the vault of our own skull, maybe we should recognize that no matter how bad things get, like, you know, we're miraculous beings. I mean, you know, virtually everybody's a genius. And, yeah, we're not taught that way or treated that way in elementary school, uh, but... This is good news, and it's something where even if you do wind up in the hospital and that's your first encounter with mindfulness, a lot of people tell me, you know, after eight weeks, this this actually saved my life. Mm. Not surgery, not drugs, but that capacity to self-regulate. So let me just say what, if it's okay, to say what mindfulness is. I was just going to ask you. So that and and how do you practice it? Because I I think we've talked about it. You've been talking about it on a somewhat theoretical level and a scientific level. It's abstract. Yeah, well, let's... To a listener, it's like, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah, let's make it concrete. Okay. So um, reporters often ask me, like, give me one word. What is this mindfulness stuff that everybody's hearing about now? And, you know, and there's a lot of corruption of it and commercializing of it so that it's all about like mindful bread or mindful (laughs) bracelets or, you know, because it's hot. So, you know, they're going to be unscrupulous people that are always going to, they can't even spell mindfulness, but they, yeah, they're big experts in mindfulness and they have no idea that it's actually a discipline. It's something you have to work at. It's like exercising a muscle. And a lot of the time, you don't want to exercise a muscle. It hurts to lift the weight. And so you have to have kind of the right motivation and intentionality and so forth. So the one word response is I've developed a few. So one is, you know, uh, mindfulness is another way to say awareness. But awareness, you know, as you said at the beginning, like, oh, big deal. You know, I mean, what's the big deal about awareness? Well, the fact is... Awareness is a huge deal, and we never recognize that it's a form of intelligence that's much bigger than thinking. Because you take any thought, no matter how big, the thought of like uh, uh, the um, Einstein's, uh, you know, general theory of relativity, which was like 100 years old this year, 1916 to 2016. And this year, they, they actually detected waves in the structure of space-time, gravity waves from uh, gigantic, unimaginably big black holes, massive black holes that collided billions of years ago. And finally, the vibrations came here. And there are two observatories, they call them, that 
measured the same fluctuation, like the tiniest fraction of a kind of width of a hundredth or a thousandth width of an electron, and they could detect it in two places at once, 2,000 miles away. So that's pretty cool, you know, that we can be that sensitive. So awareness is much, you could take that thought and you can hold that in awareness. So no, how, no matter how big the thought, it can be held in awareness. No matter how horrible the emotion, it can be held in awareness, and that may give you new ways of working with it. So can I just jump in on that yeah, for a second? Please. Because it took me a while to wrap my head around this, and I'm not even sure I have. But we all know that we're thinking all the time, but knowing you're thinking yeah. – that's awareness. People don't know that they're thinking Well, the right, time. exactly. That's the first yeah, discovery well, when you yes. sit, get your butt on a cushion right. or a chair and right. you start to meditate. And I'll say something to you like, uh, you know, Dan, let's just uh, see if we can feel our body breathing. Anywhere in the body you want, can you feel the body breathing? You say, well, that's a cinch. No problem. I do that, John. No worries. And so you direct your attention to someplace in your body, let's say the tip of your nostrils or down in your belly, and you feel the movement of the belly or the air moving at the nostrils, and, and you ride on the waves of the breath with full awareness. Easy. No, no, no sweat. And within a fraction of a breath you'll forget that you decided to do that <laughs> and something will distract you. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it'll be a thought. The thought might be in the form of like, uh, I better check my, you know, see if any texts have come in or whatever it is. But we are infinitely self-distracting. Never mind the outside world distracting us as well. So it turns out it's not so easy to just attend moment by moment by moment to any aspect of experience. So that's where the discipline comes in. It's like weightlifting, you know. The breath comes in, the breath goes out. You're following the breath coming in, breath going out, breath coming in. Your mind gets trapped, you know, carried away by some thought stream, you know, fantasy, memory, anticipation, worry. And pretty soon, like, you forgot that you're breathing. Well, this is illuminating for most people because they don't realize their mind is thinking all the time. They just don't realize that. So that is... I'm using the word, it's a realization. It's really a, a moment of enlightenment because, for, and especially for the first time, it's like jaw-droppingly amazing. My God, I've been thinking my entire life and thinking that my thinking is my life mm -hmm. because I'm so much a prisoner of it, so caught in it. And then, of course, thinking is deeply wedded with emotional reactivity. So you know, think thoughts that spiral us into depression and, into anxiety, into anger, and it's, like, and it's all like extra, like most of it has nothing to do with reality. It's just thinking. So that's a kind of moment of awareness that, that's powerful and that says, oh, well, maybe there's some value in actually learning who am I if I'm not my thoughts, the constructed reality that I'm making for myself out of habit that I don't even realize well, that's a really good question. And rather than answer it, why not just keep asking, who am I really? What am I really? And this is kind of direct path into a kind of inquiry where you ask the question, then you just open. You don't try to think your way through that question. You just listen. And that listening is mindfulness. It's wakefulness. It's awareness. So one word for my one-word answer, what is mindfulness, is awareness, but we don't appreciate what awareness is. Another is that it's relationality. Because, like, even we say, like, uh, well, you're following your breath. And we say, yeah, I'm following my breath. Who says it's your breath? Mm. 
I mean, if it was up to you to be breathing, you would have died a long time ago. You know, good luck, like got carried away, distracted, dead. So we're not allowed anywhere near the real, you know, brainstem mechanism that controls the phrenic nerve and the diaphragm. Forget about it. Like we're not reliable enough to keep ourselves breathing. But we're still willing to claim it's my breath. That's nonsense. I mean, it's like a little bit narrow. So then if, well, if it's not your breath, and who's even saying that it's my body? I mean, is it the body saying that? Who's thinking that? Is the brain separate from the body? Is it, what, what about the mind? So then it becomes like really interesting. You know, uh, why don't we learn this in elementary school? Like that we don't actually know who we are except like we're given a name. So, oh, yeah, I'm John. You know, but who is that? And, and so this is like one of the most profound things that we can do is like be who we really are as opposed to the propaganda that we generate about ourselves, much of which is unbelievably painful because we all feel inadequate. And what if you flipped that and said like, no, you're actually, and the Buddhists would talk about this, you're actually a Buddha. You're actually perfect just the way you are. And if you went to law school or you're really smart like, uh, you know, kids, uh, they'll say, well, you don't know who I am because if you knew who I was, you'd never uh, think that I was perfect the way I am. And I would flip that and say, yeah, you're actually perfect with all your imperfections. That's the real perfection. So can we just accept that as a kind of starting point and then see what happens if you actually radically accept yourself and just love the unfolding as a big adventure because we don't know what's going to happen next except that when we dig those kinds of thought ruts for ourselves, usually what happens next is what happens a thousand different times and finally your spouse says to you, you know, you haven't grown any in 20 years. You say the same old thing, the same old reactions, same old ruts, ruts, ruts. Why do you think the divorce rate is 50%? It's like because we're not learning and growing. So this has deep applications. Let me give you the – let me give your listeners the – uh, my working definition of mindfulness. So I use the two words like awareness. If you want just one word, it's awareness. And that's not trivial. It's like only the most amazing thing about humanity. Uh, or relationality. So relationship to the body, relationship to interior experience, thoughts, emotions, sounds, whatever. Relationships, social relationships, world relationships, the environment, the global warming. I mean, you know, we can relate with our thoughts too. So we know about global warming and the science of it. It's like a, it's a form of awareness that we can act on if we have, you know, and social connectedness. So economic awareness. I mean, there's no boundary to awareness. It's one of its beauties. So my working definition or what I would call operational definition of mindfulness is, is the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. I'll say it again because it's hard to take it all in. It's the awareness that arises or can be uh, invited through paying attention. So there's nothing particularly magical, mystical, or meditative, or weird, or Eastern about paying attention. All teachers would love to have the kids pay attention. Mm -hmm. But rather than teaching them how, they yell at them to pay attention. It's not the most skillful thing. So paying attention on purpose. It's like, oh, not like something catches my attention, but I purposefully direct my attention. And I can do it through touch. I can do it through sight. I can do it through hearing, listening. I can do it through um, tasting. I can do it through smelling. So that's why the senses are like really put us in touch, to use, you know, the sense of touch, uh, with uh, dimensions of experience. 
So the awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose through all those sense doors in, pre- in the present moment, because that's the only moment we could ever pay attention, and then the kicker is non-judgmentally. And that doesn't mean we won't have judgments. What it's saying is, like, notice that we have almost nothing but judgments, mm-hmm. ideas about this and that. And I like this. I don't like that. I like her. I don't like him. Uh, I used to like him, but now I don't like him. You know, it's like endless evaluating of everything. And so non-judgmental means we're going to suspend that to the best of our ability. We'll just suspend how judgmental and ornery we are about virtually everything and then see what that feels like uh, and then not judge how judgmental we are. And that turns out to be, you know, I mean, mindfulness is spoken of by the Buddhists as the heart of Buddhist meditation. And it is the heart of Buddhist meditation. It's all in uh, the Satipatthana Sutra, which is, you know, the great sutra on mindfulness. And it's all in another Mahayana Sutra called the Heart Sutra, which is unbelievably profound and is really a kind of recognition of this and that is a certain kind of dualism that uh, is not an accurate representation of reality. So, uh, that's always confused me, This the idea. Buddhists are always kind of, this may be too strong a verb, but railing against duality, you yeah. know, the separation between me and you yeah. or this and that, the yeah. observer and the observed. Yes. I don't actually, this, this is, that's a very hard thing I'm to understand. I'm glad we boiled down to this one because especially observer versus observed because if your people are listening to us and they're thinking, oh, I think I'll try that, you sit down and I would use the language, I observe my breathing. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Okay, so there's me or the observing function. There's me, whoever that is. There's the observing function and then there's the breathing, okay? So, yeah, conventionally speaking, 
whoever it is that is doing the observing, it's not you, it's me in this case, unless you're doing it too, then it would be we. But there's a separation between the observer and the observed. And that is kind of relatively true. But ultimately, and this is one of the beauties of the English language, if we just say, uh, if we agree that rather than saying there's me observing the breath, there's simply observing, okay, then we do away with the subject-object duality right there. And the English language can do that. There are other languages that have a much more difficult time of it. So there's breathing. But there's no breather, because as we said, I mean, if, if it would, the breather would be asleep at the wheel and you'd die. So there's no breather, there's no witnesser, but there can be witnessing. So the subject-object separation is relatively true and is convenient. You're sitting on that side of the table, I'm sitting on this side of the table, there's no question. But actually something else is happening is that we're in conversation where our minds are actually not separate. You're listening to me. I'm speaking. I don't even know how I'm doing this, and none of us do, how we generate grammatical sentences, some of them very long, by wagging our tongue and moving the air out of our lungs and moving the lips in such a way that I'm not biting my tongue and it's coming out, and so far it's grammatical, and we don't know where it's going, but it's going to work out in some way or other. I mean, every sentence is a kind of miraculous uh, event you know, that it completely obeys Chomsky's, you know, sort of generative grammar. We don't recognize the genius of this kind of thing. And when we hold it in awareness, then there's no separation between you and me in this moment. But what is this lack of separation, which can sound a little theoretical, yeah. philosophical? Or airy-fairy. Right. Well, so, so how does it land in an actual human life? What difference does it make? Well, this is where wisdom comes in. Okay, uh, mindfulness is not all about like stress reduction or you know healing you know your emotional pain or whatever. It's actually recognizing the deep structure of reality and that um, everything is interconnected. We live in an interconnected universe. So let's just take the fact that uh, you know uh, on November ninth, Trump was elected president. Okay, so a lot of people have very strong thoughts about it. In fact, the country seems to be like equally divided. Yeah, people, some people love it. Some people absolutely exactly, hate it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and for very good reasons. I mean, if you start to hear the racism and the sexism and all of the stuff that was out there during the campaigns and during the election and so forth, it's something that we haven't experienced that in our face, at least in my lifetime in the political arena. I mean, it's a certain kind of like he just pulled the rug out from under all the standards, if you will, and actually won. So let's say the people who are not happy that he did it and are terrified or that, you know, he may wind up being, you know, demagogue or, you know, sort of whatever uh, and harm the country in enormous ways. Well, you could lose your mind over that one and get much more into a, like a, a dualism of us versus them. The, and, of course, we're the good guys. Whoever we're always the good guys. <laughs> we don't know who we are, but we know that we're the good guys. And they, they're the bad guys. As soon as you do that, and we've been doing this for only like 9,000 years, the tribalism, you know, where it's us against them, only now it's tribalism with nuclear weapons, a tribal mind with nuclear weapons. Uh, the, the stakes are very high for the species and for 
global warming and the well-being of the planet. So there's only one planet. So there's a unity. We're all part, you could say, cells of one body, the body politic of the planet or the the, the ecosystem or whatever. But, you know, we function more like ecosystems rather than mm. ecosystems. So that's what I mean about the non-separation of self and other. And that's where love arises. I mean, anybody who has ever experienced love, not acquisitive kind of love, I want that, you know, and you objectifying the other to satisfy a need of your own, but a real authentic recognition of a, a certain kind of marvel, a certain kind of awe, a certain kind of beauty. And, and you could fall in love with a tree or a landscape or the sunrise or a human being or your daughter or son or granddaughter. And it is, there's something mysterious about it. It goes way beyond sort of just me and you. It, it has to do with a certain kind of we. Because in a sense, like, life is uh, one seamless whole expressing itself. And we have the kind of conceit that we're special, you know. Uh, the DNA worked out to be me, you know, and I'm real special. And the only thing I really care about is more for me, getting ahead, how many tweets do, do I send out and how much people love them. It seems Trump is a lot like that. You know, he really wants to be loved, you know. I mean, it certainly appears that way. And there are all sorts of psychiatrists and psychologists out there who were very happy during the, uh, you know, the uh, – um, in the lead up to the election, to diagnose him, you know, just from what he's saying in the newspaper and so forth. But my point is not so much about Trump, but how easily we can fall into an us and them mentality. And there's something about that that is lost, and that is the underlying unity. And what would the skillful political wisdom approach be to that in a time where you're also very well aware of the very, very high level of danger? So what would it be? Because, I mean, there is so much disagreement on both sides. Yeah. Uh, so I don't well, even... First, it would be like not knowing, recognizing that maybe you don't know. Maybe thinking's not going to, you know, resolve this. Maybe that's not up to it. Maybe we need deeper intelligences and we need multiple voices. And this is something that will be a, a collective enterprise and learning and growing Unfortunately, like, you know, hopefully, hopefully won't lead to like um, levels of suffering that are, that are extremely imaginable, but that may be so imaginable we don't want to go anywhere near it, so unimaginable. That's the, that's the risk, but that was actually a risk if Trump had lost. But we would be more asleep. At least part of it, us would be more asleep, and the other part would be more disgruntled and feel like the country doesn't care about them and they're being like, the, you know, sort of destroyed by globalism or, you know, the digital world or whatever it is. And see, what it is is like we're learning how to be human. And all of this is part of the curriculum. Why? Because it came up. It arose. That's the thing about meditation is like it's not about finding some special state. It's like whatever arises, that's the curriculum for this moment. Don't like it? Tough noogies. I mean, it's like it's here. You want to spend the rest of your life denying it? So that's true for what, you know, some like tiny little thought that, or emotion that goes through your mind. And it's also true for the country. And it's true now for the world. So this is the way I frame it. And this is the way I see it. Um, we called ourselves the species – we called ourselves uh, as a species homo sapiens sapiens namely the species from the Latin sapere, which means to taste, 
So sense or to know. And the Buddhists talk about awareness as a sixth sense, another sense. It's sense. So we're the species that knows and knows that it knows in the sense of not cognition and metacognition, but awareness and meta-awareness. That's what it really means. But that's a very precocious name to give to ourselves. I don't think we've quite lived our way into it in the past. And we haven't been around very long, you know, in civilization, West, civilization, human civilization, 400 generations, 500 generations, 600 generations since the last Ice Age. That's not that many generations. So we have a lot of learning to do to grow into that name we gave ourselves, the species that knows and knows that it was, and the species that has... And the way to do it is by cultivating wakefulness, by cultivating intimacy with awareness, with the good, the bad, and the ugly, in a way that doesn't get caught by... In that dualistic divide, because we know that that leads to delusion, greed, hatred, all in the guise of like, well, of course I'm right and they're wrong. Yeah, but how do you take a stand for the? So, say you're pro-Trump and angry at all the protesters who, or you're angry at um, maybe Democrats in Congress who are going to stand yeah. in in the president's way, or you're anti-Trump and you're upset about him pu- pu- putting people on in the EPA who deny climate change or yeah, whatever. Absolutely. So, how do you take action in within this with the spirit of non-separation that we're all yeah. one? That's the koan. That's okay. that's the puzzle. That's the challenge of the moment. I cannot answer that question because my answer would be a mere cognition or philosophy, no matter how smart I was. It's not possible to answer it. It will be an emergent phenomenon that will be in some sense shaped by every single one of us to the degree that we're willing to show up, stand up, and do what we think is in alignment with our deepest values and talk with people who are different from ourselves and see what emerges. And I'm of the persuasion, and it's very optimistic, that the actual trajectory, the arc of human evolution over the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand years is in the direction of less violence and greater wisdom, greater, less harm. But we have the potential to reverse that with one nuclear weapon in the city. Uh, and don't forget, we're the only country that ever dropped nuclear weapons on cities, and we did it twice. Uh, and those things are arguable, but we need to remember that not everybody sees us as the good guys you know, in this particular world. And the kind of decisions that we made, and I don't want to get too into politics, but not everybody in the world sees us legitimately as like the, the people on the white, you know, the white knights on the white horses, you know, saving the world from itself. There are other viewpoints. And we have to learn to sort of befriend the other and not other people. You know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is all about othering and feeling like we've never really been seen. And if I'm driving around in a, you know, sort of a, uh, in a neighborhood with a, a taillight out in my car and I happen to be black, I, I'm at great risk for being shot. Uh, if I'm white and I have a taillight out, I'm not at great risk for being shot. These are fundamental things that it's very easy to miss when you're white, when you're privileged, when you and this is part of mindfulness is waking up to the ways in which we've been asleep to the suffering of others. 
And until we as a species learn that we are 99.99% the same genetically and in terms of how we see the world, uh, we're going to continue to kill ourselves over our differences. But with nuclear weapons and the kind of power that we have now, that really would be a very sad chapter in the history of humanity. So who's going to take responsibility for that? Uh, only all of us who care. And to me, that would be a radical act of love and a radical act of sanity and uh, getting outside and beyond ideology but never giving up your human core values. So it sounds like you, you think of a Trump administration as a massive opportunity to practice mindfulness. Well, we don't have any choice. And <laughs> since not practicing mindfulness was never not a, a good idea, because if you're not mindful, you're actually missing your moments. If you miss your moments, say, for 20 or 30 years, you might miss your children and growing up, and you might really see more your ideas of who your children are rather than your children. Uh, that generates an awful lot of resentment further down the road. All sorts of things like that. If we were to actually show up in our lives and be more present and let awareness or mindfulness become the default mode and kindness and compassion as well because they're not different, uh, then rather than mindlessness and reactivity and ussing and theming, uh, then I think we stand at least the snowball's chance in hell of making it through this uh, and owning the beauty and the wisdom and the creativity and the generativity that happens in our concert halls, that happens in our, you know, um, uh, science labs, that happens in our, you know, uh, painting studios that that arises in the great poems of the world. I mean, you know, we when the human mind knows itself, you get all that beauty. And when the human mind doesn't know itself, you get Auschwitz, you get the killing fields of Cambodia, you get, you know, you get uh, racism, rampant racism, rampant sexism, rampant violence. And we always think it's someone else that's doing it. But there's a certain way in which we have to own the fact that, like, hey, I'm capable of violence under the right conditions. Yeah, well, one of my favorite uh, Buddhist Writers, Stephen Batchelor says that if you look into your own mind, you're going to see a rapist and a, and a killer. And you see, that's the beauty of it, because then you're not othering. And then when you come to terms with that, that was my definition of healing. You actually see that in yourself. Then that's going to change how you conduct your life, you know, because you can always make a choice. Yeah, I might be murderous, but that feeling doesn't have to result in pulling a trigger. I've worked with people in prison who their whole life was changed by one moment where they made a decision, usually when they were out of their mind, that landed them in prison, if not dead or shot or machine gunned. And I've met people who have, you know, doing yoga and like, oh, I can't lift my, I would, you know, sort of, I remember this very vividly, the guy pulled up his shirt and showed him he'd been machine gunned across his chest and lived to tell about it, but he couldn't actually do the you know, the bridge posture the way, you know, he thought he should. And I said, like, it's fine. However you're doing it. <laughs> you get a pass. But, but that's it. I mean, I, I feel like in a certain way, mindfulness is not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. And if it was an absolute necessity, and I always thought it was based on all the science and the medical, you know, uh, results and so forth, uh, on no November 8th, and it's infinitely more that way since November 9th. And that's in spite of all the hype and the 
if I can say on the radio, bullshit and so forth that that is accruing to mindfulness, the essence of it, the heart of it uh, is not denaturable because it's been around for a very, very long time and it's weathered many, many cycles of disillusion. And, you know, so we don't need to sort of promote mindfulness. What we really need to do is embody it in ourselves and see what happens. And to just say, to complete it, that in all Asian languages, the word for mind and the word for heart are the same word. So if you hear me saying the word mindfulness in English, and you're not in some sense healing or feeling heartfulness as well, hearing it, then you're not understanding it because there's an element of kindness and self-compassion that's completely woven into the attending itself. And let's not forget that doctors who see patients in the hospital, they are called attendings. Mm. And, you know, and we're t- training our medical students to not forget the patient so they mistake the diagnosis for the patient and to really lead with compassion, to lead with kindness, to lead with their own presence, and to listen. All of that's mindfulness. Just let me get back to something you said a couple sentences ago about the BS and the hype around mindfulness. Mm. Um, You know, in some ways, you set this whole thing in motion. Yes, people (laughs) blame me for a lot of it, I'll tell you. Especially the Buddhist scholars. Yeah, the old school Buddhists, they they have some problems. You know what? I'm willing to take that. I I think the... the wholesome, as they would say it, or the good, so far outweighs the unwholesome and the, and, and the negative. That I'm, I'm. If they want to come after me, that, that's fine with me. When people, because just just to fill in listeners who may not be familiar with this debate, there are, as you well know, some folks uh, in the Buddhist community who are upset about what they call mic mindfulness, yeah. and that this that it's become secularized, and that something has been lost in the process. And they they point at people like you. They also point at people like me, by yeah. the way. Uh, uh, no, I'm sure they do, uh, and say um, you you're creating the problem here. Well, I'll tell you one thing about since you brought up the word secularized, and I know Stephen Batchelor would you know, say something different about this. But I've started more and more to stay away from using the word secular in describing mindfulness. Uh, I know why people do it, because they want to differentiate it from Buddhist meditation practice. But it is the heart of Buddhist meditation practice, but it's also non-dual, and the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. So, uh, you know, it's incontrovertible that this is really universal and um, when you say the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist I love that point because the Buddha didn't think he was st- starting a religion no. he was teaching people some mental exercises to, to make fundamental changes yeah and we make it, and this is like one of the non-dual pieces as well see so if you make Buddhists Buddhism's all about non-dual seamless wholeness of reality so but then if you make Buddhists and non-Buddhists you've already made right. a, a separation yeah it's fine for in the conventional world because you need to separate like and it's good because you appreciate the other different kinds of temples different kinds of religious traditions different and so forth but the essence of it is human it's not buddhist uh you know Christ wasn't a Christian either when you come right down to it. I mean, I've said that on the airwaves before on television. Uh, So we have a certain way of creating separation when even our greatest teachers on the planet were pointing to non-separation. To that kind of a beauty. And I'm, I'm trying to loop around in my mind for this, this thread that I was, that I was, um, saw at one particular moment that had to do with, um, 
Secularism? Yes, secularism. Thank you. So I'm staying away from the word secular now because uh, it's dualistic. As soon as you say the word secular, then it separates it from what is the opposite of, of, of secular. It's sacred. Okay? And I'm not willing to give up the sacred. If you sit down to meditate, I see that as a radical act of love. And I would say that it is as sacred as, say, the Hippocratic Oath is sacred in medicine. Yeah, but as soon as you start talking about the sacred, it's hard to get the practice into schools and other public spaces. Uh, People get nervous. Yeah, that's true. That's why they use the word secular. But I would prefer that they use the word mainstream. Okay, because then it doesn't create the same kind of dualism. It may create another dualism that I don't recognize, but I've started to sort of talk much more about the mainstreaming of mindfulness because it is universal, and it always was universal. And the reason I don't want to give up the word sacred, and it's not just about like hard to bring into schools, because the fact of the matter is that not just the – we talk about the doctor-patient relationship as being sacred. There's nothing kind of airy-fairy or religious about that or spiritual even. It's sacred. You want your doctor to be present and pay attention to you, listen to you, and not treat you as an object. Uh, So that's sacred. Uh, Love in some sense when it's not acquisitive is also sacred. Uh, Our relationship with our children is sacred. And in the last line of the Declaration of Independence, it says, to which we dedicate our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Okay, so that's why I'm not willing to give up the word sacred. And I see it as kind of a very American and very political and not really either spiritual or religious, but representing a kind of wisdom, a, a kind of reverence that is related to wonder, to awe, to a recognition of what really makes us human and what we would actually stand up and die for. And I see that as beautiful and as sacred. And rather than just go up and, you know, be shot on the firings by a firing squad or something, why not live that way uh, and let there be no separation between your meditation practice and your life? So that the real meditation practice is not sitting in a cross-legged posture or in a chair and uh, attending to objects of attention and resting in awareness. That's incredibly important, and I hope people pursue it who are out there listening to this. But the real meditation practice is how we live our lives moment by moment by moment, how we walk in the door at the end of our workday, how do we say hello, how do we hug our children, are we there or are we on the way to something else while we're hugging the kid, but we're also like doing something else. So we're we're uh, multitasking, even at home, uh, and we're distracted. Of course, the kids know that instantly, yes. and, your, mm-hmm. and your spouse or partner knows that mm-hmm. instantly. So there's where the rubber meets the road. Can we be mindful at home? Can we be mindful in the car driving? Can we be mindful, uh, you know, when we're out running, you know, rather than distracting ourselves as we're running? What about... I've trained Olympic, you know, the Olympic rowing team in in meditation and all sorts of uh, world-class and Olympic athletes in meditation. They don't distract themselves while they're they're working out and running. They are tuning in rather than tuning out. It's very, very powerful. So ultimately, and you know, the Chicago Bulls practice mindfulness in their championship years, the Los Angeles Lakers, Kobe Bryant, you know, they all practice mindfulness. And, you know, they're 
all millionaires. They're all very tall. They're all incredibly accomplished at basketball. Why would they do such a thing? Because they're very competitive. And if they think something's going to give them even a like 10% edge, <laughs> if you just pull a figure out of the air, <laughs> uh, or even a 1% edge, very competitive people are going to want to go for that. But they recognize that all of the evidence suggests that that's not some airy-fairy nonsense thing that five years from now everybody's going to laugh at them. This is like they do it because they can feel that they are more on their game when they're 100% present. And especially in the face of adversity or like how you come back after a loss or anything like that. This is like so whether it's sports or whether it's art or whether it's music or whether it's science or whether it's poetry or whether it's whatever it is, uh, there's in some sense no substitute for living our lives moment by moment as if they really mattered. And, you know, a lot of people say I'm like worried about dying, you know. And, so, and Oprah once asked me, like total surprise, she said to me uh, out of the blue, she said uh, – what do you think about life after death? And I said to Oprah, that question is really the wrong question to ask me. I'm not concerned with life after death. I'm concerned with whether there's life before death. (laughs) And Thoreau is very famous for saying in Walden, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what they had to teach and not when I came to die discover that I hadn't lived. So, you know, and if you read Walden, I mean, it's like a rhapsody of mindfulness. He would stand, you know, in the pond, up in Walden Pond, up to his nose and just watch the life uh, uh, of the skimmers and, the, you know, the insects and the plants and the birds and so forth. From that perspective, or sitting in his, the, his, the doorway of his home for hours at a time and just listen to, you know, the soundscape and this is not like becoming more stupid or idiotic. This like you know, this is not something that's going to make you more uh, less functional. It's going to help you reclaim dimensions of your life that you didn't even know existed. You're pretty good at this. I think you have a future. <laughs> I'm too old for a future. <laughs> I'm happy with the you know just this. What a pleasure. Hey, me too. I mean, this has really been a huge treat. You know. I wanted to see you again, but it's just like I had no idea that we'd have this kind of a conversation and um, listen so deeply to each other. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. John Cabot's in. Thank you very much. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.